10,000 miles east, two men and a woman waited in a dim corporate boardroom lined with claro walnut and silver filigree wall sconces. Three flat-screen televisions flickered with grainy images, then flashed to high-resolution pictures, clear as cable news. We have GPS signatures here, 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 and here, one of the men said. He stood to the right of the monitors and pointed an infrared laser at the center screen. Red dots popped up at the four compass points around a jungle clearing. Where exactly is here? another man asked. Dressed in a bespoke chalk-stripe suit and John Lobb shoes polished to an oxblood patina, the obvious leader of the group sat near the end of a huge table. Central Indonesia, the briefer responded. The Irian Jaya province, a remote and isolated patch of primeval rainforest that is well protected by sympathetic indigenous populations, the nearest town is a Yali tribal village called Telambela. Telambela. That's a hell of a place for something like this to start, isn't it? The man in the $4,000 shoes asked. A better place for it to end. A woman in a dated yet still elegant business suit of cashmere and silk answered. Tall and refined, she paced back and forth in front of leaded glass windows that reached all the way to the ceiling fifteen feet overhead. New York at night stretched out before her. Let's hope so, the briefer agreed. His voice sounded hollow, like that of a soldier consigned to a hopeless battle. Recent intelligence suggested that the strongest wave of terror in U.S. history could begin within days. If they failed to intercede in this godforsaken stretch of third world wilderness, the ramifications would spread to places the best minds at CIA and the FBI had never even imagined. I got that sentry with the Galil coming around the bunkhouse. Call him Banjo Man. Jeremy spoke softly and used his left hand to dial an Inmarsat phone that technicians at the FBI's electronic research facility had fitted with a specially modified Fascinator secure voice module. A second sentry, whom they'd already nicknamed Castro, stood smoking a double Corona just outside one of the huts. What time you got? he asked. The rain, which began to fall in earnest now, had crept inside his supposedly waterproof watch, rendering it useless. "'1340,' the woman said. Without waiting for Jeremy's reply, her voice turned low and guttural. A strange combination of clicking sounds and grunts filled the sodden air around them, foreign words that seemed to originate in the back of her throat and pass up through her nose." A response came from somewhere behind, where they lay at the base of a steep mountain slope. Click, honk, tuck, tuck, aum, alp, a huskier voice said. Quit that shit and speak English, Jeremy whispered. He craned his neck, searching for the Yali tribesmen nestled in the tangle behind them. The tiny man with the penis gourd, rattan nose rings, and a string of babirusa teeth around his neck had guided them into position, and then secreted himself back within an environment only a native could love. "'Be careful what you say,' Jane responded. "'These people are very intuitive and perceptive of tone. You know, his ancestors were headhunters.'
Yeah, I think I saw them once at the circus. Jeremy's tone left little need for intuition. You tell him to stay where we can see him. I don't trust that little bastard. G.I. Jane said nothing for a moment, then... He says the messenger will come out of the north just before dark. Onset of evening nautical twilight is 0737 Zulu, which means we have two hours. You want to rotate off your scope for a while? Jeremy shifted behind the butt of his sniper rifle. It had taken his team three days to walk into position from a helicopter insertion near a river village. A CIA case officer had met them there and introduced the eight-member task force to this tribesman, whose name Jeremy didn't even try to pronounce. G.I. Jane, a former Special Forces Intelligence officer now assigned to the CIA, served as translator.